Mark 12, verse 13. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. Mark 12, 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. Father, we live in an age of such tension and division over the question of governments and ruling authorities and how we should participate or not participate, Lord. And it brings oftentimes tension and division into your house, into the body of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that today as we focus on your word, regardless of where we fall on the political spectrum that we would unite around the word of God, that we would unite around Christ, that we would see that Jesus, you are so much greater and your kingdom transcends any human government. But God, you've called us to participate in this world and seek its flourishing and seek its peace. And so this creates tension in our own hearts. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us and that you would lead us, Lord, that you would unite us and that you would exalt Christ in our minds, our hearts, our church, our conversations, our town. Jesus, be glorified in all that is said and done. You are our greatest treasure. We pray that all would see you and give you praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our nation was founded by questioning the governmental authorities. Specifically, was founded by questioning the legality of taxation. The colonies were being taxed by Britain, but were not given a say in Britain's policies. And so they revolted, and the rest, as they say, is history. Since then, every generation of Americans has been invited to question the governing authorities. That's one of the beautiful things about democracy. There are official processes in place to hold the government accountable, whether through checks and balances or ultimately through voting. We have the opportunity to question the government and keep them accountable. And while this role we play in our democracy invites and gives such honor, it gives, it gives power and authority and, and dignity to the people, it also creates greater opportunity to experience tension with friends and family around the dinner table during the holidays, because of policies that 
someone may support or the ballots that they cast. But this tension isn't unique to us. There was an incredible tension among God's people in the first century that's brought out in our text today. The tension came from the question of how the Jewish people were to relate to Rome. And so Jesus is confronted by two groups of people. Remember last week we talked about the Sanhedrin made up of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Well, this Sanhedrin, it says they sent to him, they sent to Jesus. The same group, the Sanhedrin, now goes into these other groups of people and says, hey, we need you to do us a favor. We need you to go to Jesus. We're sending you to them. And those two groups are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, let's imagine that this room represents the political spectrum of Judea. You over here, like in the, someone, if someone was sitting in the far corner, that's like, that's like the Herodians. And over here, you guys over here, the far back corner, you guys are the Pharisees. You repre- these, these two groups represent the extremes of the political spectrum in Judea. The Pharisees were anti-Rome, anti-anything that had anything to do with Rome. They want Rome out. But the Herodians, they're sympathetic to Rome. They get their power from King Herod, where they get their name, who was a puppet ruler installed by Caesar to keep the peace in Judea. And the Herodians like Rome because they get power from Rome. But here, these two groups that hate each other, they don't get along. They don't get along at all. These two groups, they unite around a common enemy. They come to Jesus to trap him. Literally, this word is is a word used uh, for a hunter seeking to trap prey. They come to trap Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, they ask? Specifically, is it in accordance with the Mosaic law? Is it faithful to the Mosaic law to financially support a pagan government that oppresses God's people? This issue of paying taxes to Caesar has led many messianic hopefuls into their execution. See, Jerusalem had been occupied by Rome since Pompey captured it in 63 BC. And there were various conflicts between the Jewish people and Rome, but it all came to a head in the year 6 AD when Judea became an official Roman province and there was established in the land what was called a head tax. This head tax was to be paid by every person living in Judea. They would pay that to Rome, and the tax was one denarius, which was the equivalent to a single day's wage. And so when this head tax was imposed, there was a man named Judas of Galilee, different Judas than the one in the Bible. Although this one is mentioned in the Bible in in the book of Acts, it's not the Judas that you're all thinking about. There's a man named Judas of Galilee 
who leads a revolt. He says that this land, the land of Israel, was given to God's people by a promise that God made to Abraham. And so far be it from him, over his dead body would they pay rent to Rome to live in the land that God gave them. And so over his dead body, they did. Rome crushed this revolt. It did not last very long. And in the end, it is estimated that 2,000 Jewish people were crucified because of this uprising as a result. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, they partner together to lead Jesus into this same fate. If he is claiming to be Israel's Messiah, then obviously he is going to oppose Rome and Rome is going to do to him just as they've done to everyone else that opposes them. Now, specifically, the question that is raised is concerning taxes. But it raises a broader question. It raises the concern that many of us have today. And it's a concern regarding allegiance. Is it possible to be loyal to both God and human government? Let's begin by asking the question, can government be good? At best, many people see government as a necessary evil. In a speech from 1947, uh, a staunch proponent of democracy, Sir Winston Churchill, said in a speech that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those others that have been tried. Regardless of all its good, Churchill understood and acknowledged the failures of democracy. Any government, any, any system for that matter, that is led by sinful human beings is going to have its flaws. But this isn't the way government was originally intended. The foundations for human government can be traced all the way back to the first pages of the Bible. We see the goodness of government all the way back in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes human beings in his own image and he places them in the garden and he blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These words to subdue, or to have dominion, are words of, of, of governance. This is language of governance. This is what kings do. And this is what queens do. They rule over their domain. They have dominion. The dominion that the first humans were to have was over all of creation. As God's image bearers, they were to partner with God to extend the paradise of Eden all over the face of the earth and to fill the world with God's glory and God's image. This is the good seed of a good government. Government is good when it cultivates the flourishing of creation. Government is good when it cultivates the flourishing of creation. The humans were to cultivate the wild of nature 
to bring it into submission, to bring out its full potential and beauty, not to destroy it, not to crush it, not to go out there and, 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 and burn it down or cut it down. They were to go out into the wild of nature and cultivate it to bring out its full potential and beauty, to turn the wild into a garden. There is beauty in the wild of nature. I've had so many conversations with people who love, they, I, I, have, I have friends right now who are backpacking right now. They're going out into the untamed wilderness and to, to rest in God's presence in the beauty and the wild of nature. And in the wild of nature, there's opportunity to see not only beauty, but also to provide for yourself. For you know, generations, countless thousands of years, uh, human populations uh, provided for themselves by foraging, by going and finding the goodness in creation and, and feeding themselves with it. There's beauty and blessing in the wild of nature. But when that, that beauty and potential is governed well, it has the opportunity to provide beauty and blessing. It has the opportunity to provide good things for the world. Think of someone who wants to begin farming. Maybe they acquire a plot of land and they just start randomly throwing seeds everywhere. They're not paying attention to what time of year it is or what the weather is like or whether or not the seeds are finding their way into the ground. Maybe something will grow. Right? Maybe one of those seeds will root down in and, and begin to grow. But if the farmer governs the land well, if he rules the land well by tilling the soil and preparing the land and, and plowing rows into the fields and separating the seeds and a proper distance from each other to give it full opportunity for the roots to gain the, the nourishment that's in the ground and not compete with one another, and takes into consideration the proper season for planting and, 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 and for, for harvest, the land is going to produce more fruit. If the land is governed well, it will produce more fruit. Likewise, if humans govern and are governed well, we will produce more fruit. We will produ produce more fruit of God's image being reflected to the world, that image that we were created in will have opportunity to be seen. This is God's plan for the world. As human beings partner with God to cultivate the world, we show the world what God is like. The creation is intended to look at the way humans care for the world and say, this is what God is like. I want you to think about that for a second. Humans were made in God's image so that when we live, when we care for creation, when we, we care for one another and love one another and serve one another, the rest of the world is supposed to look at the way humans live. The creation, if they are able to observe, is to look at humans and the way that they live and say, this is what God is like. Think about human history. Think about the last couple of years. Is this what God is like? The way that we live, is, is this what God is like? 
it's not. So what about when we harm one another? What about when we harm creation? When we live contrary to God's nature and character, we not only do damage to one another and to creation, but when we live contrary to God's nature and character, we misrepresent God to the world. See, we were made in God's image. We were made to rule and subdue, to, to, to cultivate the world. We were made to rule the world as God ruled the world with the same heart, the same love, the same care, the same intention. We were to, to, to govern the world in that way. And so creation is designed to receive that governance from humanity. So when we bear God's image faithfully, the creation is able to look and say, this is what God is like. But when we govern God's creation and one another unfaithfully, the creation still looks to us and says, this is what God is like. And so we slander God. We bear a false image of God to the world when we do not govern with love or or with respect or care for one another or the creation. Do you like it when people tell lies about you? Neither does God. And it's here when we see another good aspect of government. Government is not only good before the fall, in creation, in Eden, when it governs well, but the goodness of government can be seen after the fall when government pursues and administers justice. When when things are out of line and when people bear a false image of God to the world, government has the opportunity to come alongside and correct it to bring justice. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Romans 13, 1 through 4, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Government is to pursue justice, and this is a good thing. It's important for the government not to just reflect the image of God, but protect the image of God. Not just to reflect it in the way that it leads, but to protect it when others would seek to do it harm. To stand up for human rights. To stand up for freedom. To stand up for the equality of the image of God in every human being. To stand against crime. To stand against injustice and violence and oppression. To hold the wicked accountable for evil. These are good things that a good government must do. Again, to promote human flourishing. We often think of rules as being restricting. Laws restrict. Laws prevent us from doing the things that we want to do. I wish I could go and do that thing, but I can't go do that thing because there's a law against it, and now I'm mad about it. But rules and laws 
are boundaries that promote freedom. You don't go out and drive on the street and go, stupid stoplights interfering with my freedoms. Out of the way. No, the stoplights governs traffic. It guides traffic so that it actually moves more smoothly. Yes, you may have to stop and wait when you're running late, and that can be frustrating, but ultimately you don't get in a wreck and die, and so that's a pretty good thing. Driving is dangerous enough as it is. The rules of the road help make it somewhat navigatable. They're a good thing. The walls of a house keep a family safe, not restrictive. They keep the family safe so that they can sleep in peace. Governance is like gardening. It brings order to the natural world. It brings order to the people so that the people can flourish, not to squash them, not to oppress them, not to marginalize them. Government is good when it promotes the flourishing of human beings. The reason the Herodians supported Rome and supported the taxes because Rome did some amazing things. Rome was incredible in what they were able to accomplish. No other empire in human history before Rome was able to actually increase the quality of life for so many people, relatively speaking. They did some incredible things. It reminds me, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, I'm going to say it anyway. I was raised on Monty Python. <laughs> Deal with it. God bless my uncle. There's a scene from a Monty Python movie called The Life of Brian. I'm not going to recommend it. It's very irreverent. But there's a scene from the movie of The Life of Brian. It takes place in first century Judea, right, where Jesus was living and moving and had his ministry. And there's a group of revolutionaries sitting in a small dark room. And the leader of the revolutionaries is played by our neighbor down the street, John Cleese. And John Cleese says to this group of people, what has Rome ever done for us? And there's silence. And a man says, the aqueducts. Another one goes, the roads. Education, sanitation, the wine, uh, public order. And they started shouting all of these things. And John Cleese goes, okay, okay. Apart from the aqueducts and the roads and the wine and the education and the sanitation and the general increase of quality of life and, 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 and you know, what has Rome ever done for us? Rome, let's be honest, they're not all bad. They did some good things. They promoted human flourishing in a lot of really good ways, but they did some terrible things as well. They did some awful things as well. We talked about 2,000 Jewish people being crucified for opposing attacks. There's some good. There's some bad. So government was part of God's good plan in creation to promote human flourishing. It's ingrained in the image of God in all people. And even after sin entered the world, the concept of government can still be good. But can it also be bad? Can the government also be bad? And if so, where is the line? When is government bad? See, unfortunately, the same sin the same selfishness and pride and self-exaltation that, that affects human beings also affects governments. Governments aren't exempt 
from the evils of sin and greed and corruption and violence. Lord Acton's remarks have been proven true time and time again when he said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. That's terrifying and we see it. We see it happen time and time again. And so a government is bad when it opposes human flourishing. When a government exalts itself at the expense of a people. Or when a government exalts some people at the expense of other people. This was the Roman way. Roman citizens had a significantly greater quality of life than anyone else. There was actually stores that you had to be a Roman citizen in order to enter. There was clothing that no matter how much money in the world you had, if you were not a Roman citizen, you could not buy that clothing. It was only for Roman citizens. They had a far superior quality of life than other peoples and and nations that they ruled. We've seen this in our own country. We've seen this in America. We're much like Rome. The United States of America has increased the quality of life for people in our country and across the world, potentially even unlike Rome was ever able to do. It's true. But there are many stories of violence and oppression throughout our history as well. And while the violence doesn't negate the good things, it also can't be ignored. We can't ignore what has happened in our country. If we're going to understand how to be faithful to God as American citizens, we can't hide from the difficult issues of our history. And so a government is bad when it opposes flourishing and when it ceases to do justice. If cultivating human flourishing and seeking justice are what makes a government good, then it's opposing those things that makes a government bad, when violence and greed and corruption go unchecked and unpunished, when there are those who are above the law and unaccountable to anyone else. These things make a government uh, opposed to God's design for it. But government can also be bad, even if it's increasing the quality of life for all people, promoting human flourishing and seeking justice. A government can still be bad when it accomplishes these things for its own glory rather than the glory of God. And when this happens, when the government is doing all of these things to exalt itself, it becomes a false god. A government is bad when it becomes a false god. And so when confronted whether or not the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus asks for a denarius. The denarius was the same coin that was used to pay the tax. And Jesus asks, whose image is this and whose inscription? This is a picture of the type of coin Jesus asks for. I don't know if you can see it there, but you can see it on the sides. This is a Tiberian denarius. This would have been the coin that Jesus asked for and was given. Note the image and the inscription. Doesn't look anything different than things that we're used to as coins, right? That inscription there along the top and sides, the the one on the right is the back of the coin, and it says uh, uh, Maximus Pontiff, which means high priest. And on the other side, 
It says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. It's the inscription. This coin is literally a graven image to a false god. This is a pocket idol. That's a picture of the god of the Roman government with his title. Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. They believed that when Tiberius' father, Augustus, died, he became a god, and therefore every Caesar after him was also. This is a graven image to a false god. Now, we talk about the idolatry of money quite often. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the idolatry of money. I'm talking about the idolatry of the dude on the money. Jesus asks, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription? Caesar, this is an idol. The cult of the emperor was devoted to the worship of Caesar and the coins that people used to buy and sell. These coins represented their ability to flourish in society. And it was a picture of the God of the Roman government. The fact that the Pharisees and the Herodians had these coins is evidence that they were more than okay with benefiting from or participating in the Roman idolatry machine. Makes you think about the people on our coins, doesn't it? Just because they say, in God we trust, doesn't make it true. At least the people on our coins are dead. This guy was alive. It's maybe harder to worship a, a, a guy that's, that's dead on our coins, but you get the point. You see the problem here. Government is bad when it pretends to be God. Government is bad when it exalts itself as God, when a ruler or a party or a nation casts off its God-given limitations and their power is, is unaccountable to anyone else or any other authority, it's a problem. A government that casts off their calling to pursue human flourishing in order to promote their own agendas and fill their own pockets no longer serves justice or the creation's flourishing. And throughout history, governments and rulers have exalted themselves at the expense of others. They've used their calling to govern in order to promote their own flourishing, though their subjects starve and live in fear. And this is not good. But this is not the only, it's not only the sins of a government that make a God out of government. Oftentimes, the government doesn't need to take power from the people. We give it to them happily. We happily give them more power because we need a savior. We must have a savior. When anything occurs outside of our ability to control, we look to our gods to save us. We look to money to save us. We look to science to save us. We look to politics to save us. Who else is going to save us when there's a global pandemic? Who do we look to? Where can we go? Who will save us when we feel our safety or our freedom slipping? We turn to the ones who we truly believe have the power to bring change. And so we take our pleas, we take our prayers to the temples of our idols. We take them to banks. We take them to social media. We take them to courts. We take them to the White House, to the Capitol. 
We take our pleas to the temples of our idols. And this leads to all kinds of issues when the church seeks a savior from government. When idolatry of government creeps into the church, the church loses its distinctive voice in the culture. The church is not a special interest group of any political party. The Republicans and Democrats are a conglomeration of special interest groups, and the church is not to be one of them. The Herodians and the Pharisees, they want Jesus to side with one of them, and Jesus won't. The gospel always provides a third way. Jesus doesn't affirm one or the other. He demands allegiance to himself. And those who follow Jesus are given a distinct voice in the culture. If we get swallowed up as evangelicals to the right or to the left, we lose our distinctive voice as a third way, a third culture, a counterculture for the common good, for the flourishing of creation, and for the pursuit of justice. We cannot get swallowed up into one side or the other. It's not wrong to seek change through politics. It's not wrong to seek change through politics or through voting or for running for public office, but not before we seek it through worship and prayer, through gospel proclamation and biblical discipleship. This is how God has empowered us to seek change and transformation in the world. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. When idolatry of government creeps into the church, it brings division to the body of Christ. When someone says, you can't be a Christian and vote for fill in the blank. It's a sign that your salvation is contingent upon your vote rather than the cross. And you've placed government above allegiance to Jesus. The Pharisees and Herodians had two very different ways of pursuing good in the the political world. And so they unite against a common enemy. My hope today is that no matter where we fall on the political spectrum, realistically, there's people in this room who represent the far sides of the political spectrum. My hope today is that we would unite around a common savior, that we would be united around Jesus, that we do not uh, base our faith upon our politics, but that our faith would influence our politics. Our faith would influence our policies. Our faith would influence the way that we live and the way that we vote because Jesus is not a Pharisee. He's not a Herodian. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his kingdom transcends all human government. Caesar's image and his inscription are on the coin. And so Jesus says, let Caesar have it. Let Caesar have his idols. But here's what's implied in what Jesus says. It begs the question, whose image and whose inscription is on you? The coin looks like Caesar. Who are you going to look like? Who are you going to reflect? Who are you going to represent in the way that you live? Let's be clear about what Jesus is not saying, okay? Because 
We need to understand Jesus is not saying that all existence is divided into two categories, secular and sacred. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that that Caesar or government is ruler over the secular, but God is ruler over the sacred. So give your taxes to Caesar, give your votes to Caesar, give your obedience to the law, and then give God your prayers, give God your, your, your devotion, give God your worship. That is not what Jesus is saying. We need to be clear about that. He's telling you, That all of your life, all of your existence, he's saying that all of you was made in the image of God. All of you as individuals were made in the image of God. And every part of all of you was made in the image of God. And therefore, your entire being belongs to God. All of you belongs to God. And as God's ambassadors, we work within our countries to seek the flourishing of our country and all of creation. And so being a good citizen of our country is a responsibility of our citizenship in the kingdom of God. We live as citizens of the kingdom of God and as citizens of a worldly kingdom. My wife, Katie, was born in the States, but she spent the majority of her childhood in Canada, in British Columbia, and became a Canadian citizen. She has dual citizenship. There are other people in this room I know of who have dual citizenship with the United States and a different country. And so many times this relationship, this citizenship in the kingdom of God and citizenship of an earthly kingdom is described as dual citizenship. And so how do we as Christians live as dual citizens. I want to give just a few points and close in this. First, we follow Jesus. First and foremost, no matter what, we follow Jesus. He's not only shown us the way of God, but he's demonstrated how to pursue holiness, how to pursue righteousness under even the most hostile governments. Jesus has shown how to navigate a politically divided culture. He doesn't take sides. When the Herodians and the Pharisees want him to choose a side, he presents the third way. We often want Jesus to affirm our politics and our party, but he calls us to abandon our preconceived notions of politics and give our allegiance to him. First and foremost, when it comes to living as dual citizenship, dual citizens, it's knowing where our priorities and our allegiance is. And so first and foremost, before all else, we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus but we also follow the laws of the land. Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, the most remarkable thing about what Peter is saying here is who he's talking about when he talks about honoring Caesar. He's talking about Nero. Nero was one of the most evil men to ever live. He did everything within his his power as the God of Rome to crush 
faith in Jesus. He was even known to light his garden at night by burning Christian martyrs. He was a terrible, terrible human being. And Peter says to honor him. Church, we have to be honest. We've not always honored our presidents. We've not always honored those in authority over us. And I believe that scripture would call us to repent. That scripture would call us to repentance when we slander people, no matter what position they're in, no matter what we agree with or disagree with. If Peter can call the church to honor Nero, he can call us to honor whoever is in office, whether it's Biden now or somebody else in the future. We need to seek to honor those who are in authority. And Peter says that it's by doing good and by honoring the governing officials that the ignorance of culture is put to silence. But we have to ask then, where's the line? Do we just blindly follow the laws of the government without regard to what they are or what they mean for our faith? That's, that's, that's not. That's not the case. There are times when Christians have a moral obligation to disobey the government. But it's not as often as we might think. As Christians, we are obligated to disobey the government only when the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. We see this in the book of Daniel. When the people were forbidden to pray, they disobey. When the apostles are commanded by the Sanhedrin to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, they say, far be it from us to obey you rather than God. They disobey. When the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, there will be times when we want to disobey, but God doesn't permit it. There will be times when we want to comply, but God does not permit it. And then there's a matter of your own conscience. Even when those around you urge otherwise, you must be at peace with God in all of your conduct. No matter what it is, you must have a clear conscience regarding the stance you take and the ballots you cast. And so as dual citizens living in a democracy, we follow Jesus We follow the laws of the land and we vote according to kingdom principles on all issues. We are not just one issue voters. We can't be. It's too important. It's too important to just be one issue voters. We have the opportunity to seek flourishing and justice and peace for all people when we vote. We need to be aware of both sides. Be aware that both sides represent good things and both sides are are affected by sin. And so this means that as believers, we will never have a home in a political party. This means that voting is incredibly complicated, not just for our country, but for you. For Christians, voting is incredibly complicated. We must be informed. There may be issues that are more important to us 
than others, and those issues are allowed to influence our votes, but we can't get caught in the trap of sanctioning either political party as though it's all good or even mostly good and then demonize the other. We must be prayerful. We must be informed. And we must pray for our leaders. Leadership is tough and they need wisdom. They need our prayers. We need to pray that first and foremost, that they would know Jesus. And if they already do, then pray that they would choose to honor Jesus over being reelected. That's one of the things that our Christian leaders right now need more than anything else. The courage to honor Jesus and do what is right, even if it costs them the next election. And then when we follow Jesus, we follow the laws, we vote according to kingdom principles, we pray for our leaders, we trust that God is sovereign. There has never been an election in America that has ever caught God off guard, and there has never been a president or an emperor of any nation that has ever provoked God to worry. He is not afraid of the future, and so neither should we be. This peace And this trust in God will be a struggle as long as we continue to look to human authority to save us, to rescue us. But it's not until we remember that God is absolutely committed to his image in all of humanity, that he is absolutely committed to the flourishing of his image bearers and the flourishing of creation that we'll be able to have this peace. Even when that image in us is distorted and faded, even when we slander God by our sin, God is committed to restoring us to himself and restoring the image of God in us. The Bible tells a story about how humanity God's people included, continue to make a mess of things. The biblical story is not a story of heroes. It's a story of failures, but whose failures point to Jesus, point to our need for a Savior. Our story, we are not heroes. We are not the, world, the, 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 the world's saviors. But our lives are to point to Jesus. Even our failures are to point the culture, point the people to Jesus, to the Savior that it needs. God never once has given up on us. So committed to his people and to his creation that he came into creation. He came into our world, in our image, in our likeness. Jesus Christ, the the image of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, looked like you and I. He came into this world and he lived the life that perfectly reflected the image of God to the world. If you want to know what God is like, then you look to Jesus. God is not a tyrant. He is a savior. And Jesus traded his life for ours on the cross. He took our brokenness away. He took our sin away. And he gave us his perfect righteousness. He gave us power for flourishing. He gave us power to pursue justice by his Holy Spirit in us. The only way to live as faithful citizens of a heavenly kingdom and to fight the anxiety that comes with submitting to a worldly authority is to receive the truth that Jesus has given his life for you. If God has given his life for you, there is nothing that you need to worry about because your life, your future is secure in Christ. And so you're able to give your life to him. 
The reason we can live with full allegiance to Christ is because he was so loyal, so committed to you that he gave up his life to receive your life in him. The Pharisees and Herodians hated each other, but united around a common enemy. But today, no matter how we disagree, we can unite on that, that Jesus Christ is Savior. Knowing that all the kingdoms of this world will pass away and that the kingdom of God is coming in all of its fullness when Christ returns to reign as king for all eternity. This is the truth that we have received. This is what has been done for us. And this is the promise that we wait for from heaven when heaven and earth come together and no more will we be dual citizens, but we will fully and completely operate as citizens only of the kingdom of God forever. Let's pray together. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray as as we've been taught to pray in the book of Revelation that he is coming, he is coming quickly. And so come, Lord Jesus. God, we pray for our country. We pray for the, the, the people in authority. God, that you would give them wisdom to seek flourishing and to seek justice. That you would give them courage to honor Jesus instead of seeking re-election or election in the future. God, we pray that we would trust that they are your servants, even as Babylon was your servant when you used them to bring justice to Israel. God, regardless of how they, they, they rule, regardless of how we can complain, Lord, give us peace and confidence that our King is King Jesus. And we can trust you. God, we pray that you would bring unity to the body of Christ. Do not let the division that has prevailed in our country take root in the church. I pray that as the world sees people on different sides of the political spectrum joining hands and exalting King Jesus, that the world would see what God is like, that you are a God of reconciliation. And if you can unite us in our political views, then that can give hope that you can unite us in all ways and give hope that you are, are, are coming, that you are true, that you are real when we love one another despite our disagreements. God, we pray that the world would be able to look at the church and say, this is what God is like. This is the way that he loves This is the way he preaches truth. This is the way he saves and reconciles. And that you would receive all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.